Welcome to Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. If I can just ask one thing to my new or old listeners, please hit the subscribe button and also share this podcast with friends. It means more than you realise. What's your kind of scientific head saying around the research of metformin at the moment? Metformin is not a supplement, it's a drug. Mm. It turns out that people who regularly take metformin when you account for the fact they often have diabetes have less cancers and dementia and other and other problems we want to increase the diversity of the diet our aim is to try and get people eating you know more than 30 plants a week and so often they're new things you haven't tried it's being innovative it's being exciting it's making it fun also to eat in today's episode, I speak to Professor Tim Spector. Tim has been ranked as being in the top 1% of the world's most cited scientists. In March 2020, he launched the Zoe COVID Symptom Study app. And since then, he has gained more than 4 million users recording their daily symptoms, which is now the world's largest ongoing study. Tim has now started collecting this data to see how it can be linked to chronic diseases. And alongside this, he has launched the Zoe Personalized Nutrition app with some of the leading scientists in the world. Tim is completely pioneering the area of personalized nutrition, diving deep into the gut microbiome and looking at the way our gut microbes play a key role in our health. If you are interested in gut health, personalizing your nutrition, or optimizing your health in any way, shape, or form, this is the podcast for you. We really do have one of the top scientists in the world giving you exclusive in-depth information into how you can optimize your gut microbes and personalize your nutrition. So grab a pen and a paper and get ready to make a host of notes with today's inspiring conversation with Professor Tim Spector. Tim, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you for coming on today. How are you? I'm marvellous, thank you. <laughs> Great answer. You've been very busy this morning, haven't you, cooking downstairs? What have you been cooking? Uh, we've been cooking with a Ukrainian chef showcasing some uh, Ukrainian foods to help fundraising through the uh, Food for Ukraine uh, fundraising program. And it's been absolutely great fun. Learned so much. And uh, I had no idea that they're so much into their food, really, and it's all part of their culture. So, yeah, that's just uh, an interesting, diverse morning for me. So tell me, what was in the dish that you were cooking downstairs? What was your lunch today? It was a cold borscht, and Mm. essentially that was made up of it can be made in lots of different ways, but this was base of eggs, lots of boiled eggs, cucumber, new potatoes. It had uh, lots of dill, because the Ukrainians absolutely love dill. And it also had uh, spring onions and radishes. And the dressing, which is like a, a soup, was made up of kefir uh, with... Uh, lemons to give it some tang that was diluted kefir and that's their their natural sort of half dressing half soup and together it just made this really delicious refreshing um, sort of soup base that you can 
add beans to or some people can add meat to or anything else and uh, just just lightly seasoned and then on the side you had their own version of sauerkraut and uh, pickled vegetables and uh, rye bread I imagined all Ukrainian food is really unhealthy and so I was pleasantly surprised that I was completely <laughs> wrong and that there are these variants that are actually inherently traditional that you know all their grandmothers um, mm. can make and they're all taught to make that's part of, very much part of their culture and and learning that something like kefir fermented milk is is actually much more common uh, in Ukrainian shops than yogurt w- was yeah just uh, music to my ears I was uh, yeah I've got to go to Ukraine now and uh, do a, do a kefir tour yeah it sounds incredible and I think what I love about so much that you do is not all the scientific studies, I think it's over 800 journals you've been a part of, which just shows the depth of your knowledge around gut health, the microbiome, but also the translation into everyday people of how they can actually utilize that food to help enhance their gut health and their health long term. So we last met, now it was pre-lockdown, it was the BWA Collective Wellness Summit that we did in February 2020. So then you were just about to bring out your book on Spoon Fed. And you have been very, very busy from when I last saw you. So could you just give us a bit of a, a rundown to everyone who's listening about what you've been doing since since then? I did some promotion of the book Spoon Fed and then had to do an updated version because it, 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 it sold so well. Uh, which was great fun. I added a little bit of COVID at the beginning because it was written pre-COVID and mm. obviously a lot has changed. And then also, you know, as a co-founder of Zoe, I'd been helping getting the, the product going in uh, in the US. And I think we uh, were just about to launch when, when lockdown came and we couldn't finish our studies at King's College with the final sort of clinical trials and things. So we had to delay the start of the Zoe product in the US mm. uh, until we got that. And in that interim, five days before lockdown, uh, I had this idea of doing something for COVID using the Zoe team and their app skills to develop an app that everyone at home could use for free to, to log their symptoms and try and work out what's going on in their local area and just help you know, the fight against the pandemic. And amazingly, the team at Zoe created this app in five days which is sort of unknown in the mm. it unheard of in the field the, you know the UK government app t- took about six months uh, in contrast and it was to our total surprise a complete success mm. so we had a million downloads in the first 24 hours it crashed our mm. server and it was all word of mouth because obviously we had no money it was a you know a tiny little startup company doing this uh, the government tried to shut us down, all kinds of politics Why? around it. Why did they try to shut you down? We weren't government funded, we weren't backed, they couldn't control us. They said it would uh, distract people from the really important NHS app, which is going to change you know, uh, everything. It was this very much all part of this government idea that everything should be centralised and that people having their own actions, whether it's on PPE or it was on, you know... Uh, getting COVID tests done was all irresponsible, should be done by the government in its own time and that sort of general policy. But despite all that, we had this massive um, response from the public who wanted us to carry on and we very soon had 
you know, over four million people uh, who had downloaded their data on the app and were using it. So we knew we, we had a base that we couldn't stop. And in the early days, it was the only way people found out whether they were likely to have COVID and how many people really had COVID in their area because there was no testing because the government was so badly prepared. And then uh, after about four or five months, we put a lot of pressure on the government to start funding us. And mm. uh, at the end of a you know revolver, if you like, they, they agreed to fund the study. And they did that up to April of this year when with two weeks warning, they shut off all the funding and we had to sort of start again. So, And we still have you know, around a million people logging most days on the app and who still love this interaction we've got, which is very much a two-way one because we give people mm. back, we feel we give people back as much information as they give us. So I think we've developed a totally new way of looking at healthcare mm. and we're trying to transition it from just COVID to all diseases. Mm. And most people have signed up for that and given us consent to ask about other disease and collect their data to try and prevent cancer, you know, heart disease, mental illness, etc. Just from this idea of logging every day how you're feeling and how different you are to your normal self so we can actually really move this forward in a totally unique way. And mm. uh, we're just at this, this transition period at the moment to see uh, how we cope when people have got really sick of uh, COVID, as we all have, mm. but we have to admit it hasn't gone away. There are still 120,000 cases a day, although the government tells us they're not. Mm -hmm. And we're still seeing people who are getting reinfected and um, all around us, and people getting long COVID and other other problems that we mustn't forget. So, mm. uh, But we want to really emphasize some of the lifestyle things of that and getting having this app that can get a million people's uh, nutrition data or their sleep data or their mood data and a week later we can publish it, is, you know, just an incredible tool for a scientist. So, uh, yeah, so with that, Zoe, and, you know, um, writing uh, the next book, it's been a, a very busy time. It's been a really busy time. I think as an epidemiologist, you know, that's really pioneering the way that you are collecting data and research. It's a really interesting area, like leaning into biotech to collate all of this, to use this going forward. So can you just give us... I don't want to dwell too much around the COVID situation, but from all of this data that you've collated and you said you're obviously now working towards broadening that to chronic diseases, how are you cross-referencing that? What kind of things are you seeing being highlighted through the research that you're collecting? Is there anything that you can tell us? You mean on the, uh, that we've collected from the COVID app mm. that relates? Well, I think the, the most, uh, the bit that I think was probably most insightful was doing this uh, diet survey of over a million people which we did in about June of 2020 and this is a food frequency question is really hard to get people to fill in it takes about 15-20 minutes it's quite boring and usually it takes about five years to get a grant to do that and mm. about five million pounds to get you know five pounds a person we did it all got the results within a few weeks and found that there was a link between your diet and your risk of uh, getting severe COVID uh, months later. And this was a real jolt really to the system to said, well, because in the past we just thought, oh, well, it's just about calories. It's just about people who are overweight and or deprived or poor. They're the ones that have, have been linked to this. But we took care of all those other 
factors. And once we'd done that, we still found that the quality of the diet was had this really important effect on your risk of going to hospital, getting severe COVID, getting long COVID. And that really was a wake-up call because it means if you are on a really junk food, ultra-processed diet, even if you're not gaining weight, it's suggesting your immune system is being uh, hampered by that and that you're not reacting as efficiently to COVID or any virus or infection in the right way. And this is really our unique chance to show this in a, in a worldwide experiment where everyone has been given exactly the same exposure to something. Mm. So we'll never have these chances again uh, to make these sort of scientific insights. And I think it's, to me, highlighted the importance of nutrition quality in all our health that for so long has been sidelined and just been thought of as part of calories and fats and sugars and salt, which we now know is nonsense. Mm. So can we break down for anyone listening what you mean in terms of diet quality? Broadly, it resembles a a mainly plant-based Mediterranean-style diet. and Mm. We're doing more work to follow that up. And, and get more time points. Now we've got even more COVID and we've got long COVID, et cetera. So we hope to pinpoint this even more. Mm. But, of course, you know, these are general points we know, but uh, obviously, you know, with Zoe, I'm particularly interested in the personalised effects as well. So I think mm. you can get half the way there by understanding how averages work. Mm. But to get the other half, I think we need to sort of dig into us ourselves and realize that you know even the same person at different times of life uh, is going to have different needs and um, different ideal diets Mm. and I really want to get onto that personalized nutrition because that's something that you're pioneering with with Zoe but just bringing it back to the immune system so how does it then does diet quality impact our immune system because from some research that I've read fiber plays a really large part on working with our immune system and our immune cells but what other parts of that high-quality diet really impact our immune system? Well, we're only just scratching the surface because this area hasn't attracted any any decent funding mm. and been largely ignored because we've been obsessed with you know bad fats and calories and, and sugar and just said, okay, that's that's the reason that people eat too much of those are unhealthy. And we've never really sort of focused much on the immune system or why so many people are having allergies or autoimmune diseases now compared to 20 years ago. But what we do know is that to understand the immune system, you've got to understand the gut microbiome. So you can't really separate them. Most of the immune cells in our body are in our gut, and there's actually most of them in the, in the large intestine, and that's where all 99% of our gut microbes are. So it's the interaction between the gut microbes and the immune cells in our gut that actually determine our immune status. That's how the food we eat influences the immune system is via the gut microbes. So this is all only recently becoming clear. Mm. And so in the past, we've just said, oh, you know, immune system, oh, you just need to take some zinc or something, some nonsense like this, some magic supplement that would cure you all without really knowing why. Uh, and we now know that it, getting that balance right is all because of the trillions of microbes in there that are producing chemicals that interact directly with the immune cells, and they're talking to each other all the time, either sort of winding them up or calming them down, depending on the conditions and the different chemicals that they're producing. 
And the chemicals the microbes produce is all dependent on the food that they're given. Mm. The number one factor is you know, what they're eating, and that determines the different species that are feeding off those microbes. And depending on which species they are, they'll produce different chemicals. So it's got much more complex than we ever ever believed, really. Mm. And so it's hard to summarise it in one, and we've been obsessed with fibre mm. in a rather sort of two-dimensional black-and-white view that oh it's just something that flushes a system out and you know detoxifies you mm, and that buzzword but that you know that's 50 year old science and we now know that fiber is incredibly complex mm. and lots of developments to it and fiber is essentially f- food for your microbes that change that ingredient into really helpful chemicals Mm. And those chemicals are the ones that interact with the immune system and keep it all steady. So that's what we need to think about. But it's not only fiber in food that's important. It's these other ingredients in the plants. And all plants have something called polyphenols, which I always go on about. Hopefully they'll be on packaging soon, uh, which uh, are the number most common chemical that plants produce is defense chemicals. Mm. There are thousands of them. Mm. And picking your plants that, you know, have those bright colors and bitter tastes is where you get the polyphenols. And though they, the, the microbes use them as energy, they don't actually convert them. Mm. They energize the microbes. It's like their, their sunshine, if you like, that uh, keeps them going. And so mm. the more you've got a high fiber foods plus the polyphenols and the diversity, that gives you this amazing, uh, it's a microbial pharmacy that can then really fine-tune your immune system so that it then does its job really well, limits infections, you know, gives you the right response, doesn't over-respond, doesn't under-respond, and keeps you from getting severe infections. Like, Or if you do get an infection like COVID, it's not much less likely to send you to hospital. Mm. And I think you also said there, obviously personalized nutrition is really important and does our microbial diversity reduce as we age do we need to be kind of being more aware of our microbes in our gut as we get older yes there's there's several stages Uh, the first four years of life Mm. your microbes all all over the place right we start with nothing Mm. and it goes up and down depending on infections and whether you're breastfed or who's holding you or um, whether you get given antibiotics or anything else by you know well-meaning doctors and whether you have a dog or whether you you know have other pets and whether you live in the country or you etc etc then after about four or five it settles down uh, into a pattern that's fairly stable certainly in men up to about 70 and then it starts to uh, decline but some people decline earlier and some people later in women, we know that there are quite big changes at the menopause. Mm-hmm. Mm. And this is also links in with the fact that we know that uh, there are big changes in your w- response to foods at the menopause. So your response to food at, 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 at 45 is going to be quite different to, to at 50 or 55. And so different stages of life, you will have to reevaluate how your body might be responding to food and that's why people say oh well I used to eat this and I used to be hungry I can eat whatever I like and suddenly I don't you know 
a lot of that is due to your gradual shift in microbes. Mm. And particularly in the elderly, it, it can be quite rapid and that can lead to not just changes in your metabolism, but actually triggering disease and um, you know lack of immune system that fights off cancer and other things like that. Mm. So I think in, increasingly we realize that this link between the microbes and the immune system are really vital for, you know, it's not just food allergies or uh, minor illnesses, but it, it's our surveillance system against cancer. It stops aging of our blood vessels and our heart and in our brain, and um, it stops us getting many diseases and inflammatory conditions, joint conditions, and it's important for our mental health as well. So I think we're realizing how important this preventive side mm. um, is and how we all need to learn much more about it in general and also about how it affects our own bodies. Mm. And that's going to bring me really nicely onto your research with Predict Study 1 and Predict Study 2, which is one of the largest personalised nutrition studies. Could you tell me a bit more about how this came about? Well, it really came about as the premise of how we set up the company Zoe. Mm. These two entrepreneurs, uh, George and Jonathan, came to see me after one of my talks about, I think it was the diet myth, introducing the microbiome, and they said, we love what you're doing, we'd like to think about forming a company and I said I wasn't interested in, in the normal nutrition company that really just spends all its money on marketing mm. you know they have a nice idea and then they borrow other people's science and they just spend millions on adverts etc and doctors in white coats and smiley faces you know I said, I said it's going to cost it's going to cost millions to do this study because you've got to start with a proper study and then once you've got those results, then you've got the basis for personalised nutrition. But they did come back. They were great salesmen. They convinced other people to give them money. And so two weeks later, we were, we'd started planning the PREDICT study, which was going to be the world's largest intervention study. And it was a 1,000 people, mainly twins, all given identical um, meals and studied in great detail at St Thomas's Hospital in London, where we'd have been running these twin studies uh, uh, nearly 30 years so we were really we had, a, we had a great team running it the Zoe team had his you know got everything together to make it happen and so in record time we did this incredible study in nine months that would have taken years in academia got the results out and then we were able to extrapolate from that to you know actually getting a, a product that you could use at home Mm. And so that was the, and it was just timing was absolutely perfect because we had the technology was all there. You suddenly got big computing was possible, which allows people to crunch data and do this thing called artificial intelligence and do predictions. We had continuous glucose monitors, which had suddenly become available, which were an incredible innovation. Anyone who's used them, you know, you stick it on your arm and you wear them for two weeks and you get a readout of your blood sugar every five minutes. It's amazing. Uh, you could do finger prick tests and do all kinds of um, blood tests at home uh, using that. And the genetic revolution had led us to be able to sequence all the genes and all the bugs in your gut in a poo sample um, with inc increasing precision so we could really deal finely and accurately into what's going on in your gut and you put all that together um, it was the time was just perfect 
to you know actually start personalized nutrition and, and launch it and that and very soon afterwards we launched in the US mm. and uh, yeah just this month in the UK I think it's really fascinating around the glucose monitoring system because I think a lot of people will automatically listening to this think that that is reference to diabetics can you tell me how it is working with people such as ourselves and all people who don't have diabetes and how we can then see the influence of certain foods impacts each person individually Yes, so this all started with diabetes and most of the work up to five years ago had been in Mm. diabetic patients. But what we do know is that everybody, every normal person, after eating, say, uh, a sugary muffin in the morning or a piece of toast, will have a a peak. The glucose starts to go at 30 minutes afterwards. And if you're measuring either by regular blood tests or these monitors, you see that it goes from its baseline up to... uh, it doubles or trebles mm. uh, the blood levels 30 minutes afterwards then goes quickly back down again and that's a normal response and that's because when you have um, carbohydrates convert to sugar that triggers insulin which lowers the blood levels that's completely normal but in some people they have a higher peak than others and we found in our predict study there was a tenfold difference in normal people's peak so some people you and i could have a tenfold difference in our response to the same food although neither of us have diabetes and so some people this excessive peak uh, if it's regular across the day and every day and you add it up accumulates damage accumulates inflammation and your metabolism is off kilter and you will get more tired, more hungry, and you put on weight and increase your risk of heart disease and diabetes. There'll be some people that can have as many muffins as they like, the sugar doesn't go up. Others really should be avoiding that, and they should be having high-fat foods, like me. So I found out you know, that I had a really bad sugar spike, score really badly, but... Um, if I have a full-fat yogurt for breakfast and some nuts, sprinkle with a bit of berries and, uh, and kefir, um, I don't have any sugar spike and I don't feel hungry at lunchtime and so much better for my health. And so, and the opposite is true for some people that they should avoid fats because four hours after a meal, their fat levels are still really high in their blood. They're not getting rid of it like most people. And they should be having more carb-based foods. So that's just an example. And we found even identical twins where one had one profile and the other a different one. So even being a genetic clone doesn't mean you have the same response to foods. And that was a bit of an eye-opener as well for us. Wow. And so, I mean, that just really shows that although there are such a variety of diets out there and we'll, you know, we're always bombarded by diets. And I think... That's the biggest thing is that if you are on a low-carb diet, you're starting to show the evidence of why that might be suiting you, whereas somebody else on a low-carb diet, it might actually be quite detrimental to them. So another thing that you do a lot um, is the Blue Poop Challenge. And can you describe what this is, really? Because people might be listening to this thinking, what is the Blue Poop Challenge? I think we're completely crazy. Um, (laughs) Because poop is not normally blue, just to tell people. But... Mm. um, so as part of the PREDICT studies, we, we knew that to get very precise microbiome results, 
you need to look at the time it takes from eating food until it appears in the toilet, mm. and that's called the transit time. And in the past, we've relied on something called, rather distastefully called the Bristol stool chart, which is like a horror poster where you get lots of poos uh, in doctor's surgeries, you know, from the super runny to the, the rabbit sort of droppings. Mm -hmm. And you've got to say, well, mine looks like that one. It's like an identity parade for poo. And we didn't think that worked very well. Mm. And so we, we uh, Sarah Berry came up with the idea of uh, dyeing the muffins a really, really bright sort of aquamarine blue and getting people to time it. And we, that's what we did. And it turns out that not only was it a more accurate determinant of how long it takes for your food to go through, but it also linked to your gut health as well and your general health, so that people who had really slow transit times uh, inevitably had less diverse microbes, less um, healthy ratio. So it's a, a pretty good crude test of your gut health. Mm. And we found the average for the UK was about 26, 27 hours from, of transit time. And that this ranged from about 12 hours to about 60 hours. It's a huge range of people who all thought they were normal. Mm. And for some people, going every three days is, is quite normal. And for other people, going three times a day is normal. Mm. So we never talk about it in the UK. We're very prudish about it, whereas mm. other countries, and I've worked in some of them, they don't stop talking about it, mm. particularly patients with their doctors, and they bring in samples for you to look at and things mm. like this, which just wouldn't be done in this country. Mm. So this really is, is a fun thing. That everyone, and we launched the campaign... Uh, worldwide that everyone can go on the website get the recipe for the blue muffin or the it's a harmless food dye anyone can add it to anything mm -hmm. and time themselves or their family and see how you how you, f you fit in and you know, mine ends up normally being around 18 hours we think somewhere between 12 and 24 is the sweet spot mm -hmm. it seems to be quite different in different parts of the world so the UK and the US have the slowest, longest transit times, which is maybe poor a reflection diets. of the poor diets. And uh, certainly so far, it looks like uh, those in Asian countries have uh, much faster ones, so about 50% faster. So we've done about 50,000 people so far uh, globally, but we're accumulating uh, more info. So that's, that's you know, if you finally, you can't afford a personalised test or you're waiting for one, it's a good starter, and I think everyone really should understand their transit time, which it's not just your diet that determines it. There are anatomical differences as well. We've got very different length intestines as well. So you don't want it too fast, but you certainly don't want it too slow. And so uh, interesting for people to try this, get an idea of what, they're, what they can do, maybe change their diet and redo it. Mm -hmm. I just think that a lot of these, I love the ideas of people empowered to do things themselves rather mm. than you know waiting for their gp or something to suggest it mm. and i think we just need to be much more attuned to our bodies and our and our guts and this is one fun way to do it yeah absolutely and what would you say to anyone who has a very quick transition time what would you say is kind of the outcome of looking at their diet would they have too much fiber maybe in their diet or do you think it would be something where they might have to go and speak to a doctor because it could be IBD, IBS related, and they might not be absorbing their food correctly. I think it's interesting to delve into actually the outcome of once someone has done it, what's the what's the next step of understanding that? Yeah, well, I think it depends whether they feel healthy or unhealthy themselves. Mm. And there is 
huge normal variation. They might just have a very short uh, intestine, if you like, which could be you know half half someone else's of the same size. Mm. So it's not necessarily abnormal, but I think if it's less than twelve hours, um, and then you know, and it's they would should wait and repeat it. And if it's regularly less than that, then uh, then I think they should discuss that with with their doctor mm. and think about their diet and think, well, is it a bit weird? Are they you know are they restricting too many foods? Mm. You know, are they on some food supplements or things? You know, in food replacements and things like that. If you're just having the cabbage soup diet, it might end up like that so it probably mm. means you might need more real food mm. but there is huge variation so I, I, I don't want people to get too spooked out by it mm. um, in some people it might be healthy mm. but clearly it's a bit inconvenient if you're if you're go, if you're having to go every every four to six hours I'd yeah. say most people have experienced that when they've had really bad food poisoning or mm. and you know uh, look into yeah I just think yeah, it's really important, isn't it, to kind of be more observant. And I think doing these kind of things can make people more aware that that could be abnormal, whereas mm. a lot of people might sit and accept it. That's right. But I think a lot of people in the UK that I've spoken to are quite surprised that some people go more than once a day mm. normally. Mm. They say, That's kind of weird. Why would you want to do that? You know, every two days is seen as very normal for large amounts of the population, you know, at least a third of Wow. A third of the population wouldn't go any any more than that. So I think mm. just having a conversation about this and saying what is normal, mm. and if I change my diet, how might that change, mm. is something we should all be thinking about. These are all mm. very easy things for us to to change and, and and just think twice about. You know, am I eating a healthy diet, and um, what's the definition of healthy? Is it what some marketing campaigns told me is healthy, or is it uh, is it real? Well, that's the really important thing. I think something that I want to ask you, you mentioned just quickly their supplements, and I think I could do a whole podcast on supplements um, and the marketing around them. But a lot of research that's coming up that I'd love to ask you, just because we were talking about blood glucose and we're obviously talking about reduce, reduction of chronic diseases through diet, something that's come to the forefront um, is metformin. And that's obviously used a lot with people who are diabetic. Now, there's a lot of chatter around people to use it for longevity for weight loss what's your kind of scientific head saying around the research of metformin at the moment fine well metformin is not a supplement it's a, a drug mm. it's a therapeutic drug that is the standard treatment for people with type 2 diabetes and it's been around for 40 50 years mm. it's got a, a very good safety record um, it's increasingly been found out effects that we didn't know it had on other parts of the body. Mm. And it turns out that people who regularly take metformin, when you account for the fact they often have diabetes, have less cancers and uh, dementia and other, and other problems. So it's been hailed as a potential anti-aging uh, drug as well. And this usually comes because... we gave the drug without really knowing what it did in the first place and some of them were worse than they thought and some were actually better and lots of animal studies have shown that it can prolong life reduce diabetes reduce cancer and 
there are currently a number of trials ongoing to um, prove this against, mm. against other medications that aren't through yet. Some of the pilot studies have suggested that it does have a, a beneficial effect. It is used in some other conditions, people with cyst, you know, cystic ovaries, um, as a way of just slightly uh, changing the, the, the balance of the body. And uh, I, I think these trials are going to show that it does have benefit. Mm. But they're still a couple of years away from um, that result. So I uh, have been on a trial myself of metformin. So I take half the dose, and I've been t taking that for the last uh, uh, nearly two years. And all I can say is that uh, I don't feel any older. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I've been testing my uh, a my biological age. And it actually has reduced. Uh, I do a test called glycan age, which is a, a commercial test you do on a blood spot. I've, I've been doing those for 10 years. And um, since I started taking the uh, half-dose metformin, it's actually come down. So I've gained another about five years in age in, in two years. So I think that's maybe the exception to the rule. So mm. as you probably know, I'm against 99% of uh, supplements. But for things that are going through clinical trials, um, obviously if the clinical trials show that it doesn't work, um, I would probably stop it. Mm. But I feel if I waited for all the evidence, um, I'd probably be dead by then. And, and so we'll, we'll wait and see. Yeah, so I, for me that's um, something to watch. And I think this whole type of drugs that do affect... Interestingly, they all seem to affect these, what they call these nutrient-sensing pathways in cells. And this seems to be one of the keys to anti, particularly anti-cancer and anti-aging systems. So there's a whole type of other drugs like this, but the other ones I didn't fancy taking, they're a bit, sound a bit risky to me with side effects. Can you mention what they were? Uh, rapamycin is another one. Mm. Uh, sounds absolutely great for mice and rats, but... Um, it's a bit scary, I think, for humans. I'd rather someone else test those first. But metformin, as a doctor, I've known, you know, I've been prescribing it for 30 years and mm. just taking a, a small dose of it, you know, um, I, I think is fine as an experiment. But, you know, I'm a doctor. I'm experimenting on myself. I, 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 I can't prescribe it. I wouldn't prescribe it for anyone else. Mm. Do you think you might see this in the Zoe kit in years to come? Uh, possibly. Um but I think the Zoe kit is always going to be direct to consumer. Mm. So it's not going to be a, an approved medical test or an approved you know, pharmaceutical product. Mm -hmm. I would hope that instead of a, a drug, you'd be able to come up with uh, a series of nutritional recommendations that would, that would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Once we understand what metformin does, we might be able to mimic it with... Um, the right foods that can influence your gut microbes and your gut microbes could then produce these chemicals for you naturally in the same way we think that antidepressants might work by you know if you can trigger the right microbes to produce those antidepressant chemicals you can have the same effect so probiotics in the future that um, would be uh, worked out to replace medications and so you again your your gut microbes are working like pharmacies 
So that's where I see the future more than old-fashioned uh, drugs like metformin. Today's episode is sponsored by Biocult. Biocult is the UK's number one live bacteria brand, backed by clinical research. The Biocult original formulation contains 14 strains of live bacteria, which complement the existing gut flora and survive the high acidity of the stomach. Biocult is suitable for everyday use and does not need to be refrigerated. It can be taken alongside antibiotics by children three plus years, when pregnant, by vegetarians, and as part of a healthy diet. However, if you are pregnant or planning a pregnancy, or you're taking any medications or have a medical condition, please do consult your doctor before taking any nutritional food supplement. To find out more, head to www biocult.com and so going into that's really interesting so could you tell me a bit more around the mental health side of of working with specific microbes and probiotics is there any ones that at the moment are like key drivers that you're noticing that are playing a real part in this i think we know that probiotics do work in in mental health disorders, particularly anxiety and depression type Mm. ones, predominantly where most of the studies have been. They're quite consistent against placebo that they are working. And there have been enough human studies to show this now. The problem is that they all use different doses, different formulations, different strains, and they're not comparable. And there's always some people that don't respond to them. So it's very hard to give recommendations. So that the summary of the study's meta-analysis is quite clear. They work. The individual ones, a bit up and down. So I don't think we're at the point where we can recommend a particular strain or mm. a combination of them. And I'd rather focus on rather than, you know, until they get better or that we use a wider range. The reason they don't do this is because they can't, use them safely they can't get patents for them they're not you have to go through a whole safety test that's really slow and cumbersome and it's it ends up costing you millions and a lot of people don't have the money so it's a bit of bureaucratic stuff that's stopping this happening Mm. but i think there was a a nice study called the smiles trial that did randomize people to two different diets who were who had uh, anxiety and depression and found that a mediterranean style diet um, had a better effect than, than antidepressants. So I would rather we focused initially on, on, on improving the gut microbiome through a good diet mm. um, before we recommend probiotics, particularly because all probiotics, I think, in the future are going to probably need to be personalized. Mm. Because I didn't mention it before, but all our gut microbes, microbiomes are unique to us. Only we have this unique combination of microbes that like living with each other, don't like swapping them very much. And, you know, we only share on average about a quarter of our gut microbes at random. And so if you think of that, why should you know, the same probiotic strain of some bug that lives in milk like to, you know, live in you and me? Mm. It, it doesn't, it's unlikely. So I think we're going to see a, a whole new 
suite of these probiotics that might be more tailored to people who have particular um, types of other communities. So it it needs more work, is, mm. is, is basically saying. But I think the theory is there. In general, they work. What you can't predict is whether they're going to work for you mm. and which types to, to go for. Therefore, I'd much rather people, you know, took kombucha or kefir, which have 15 or 20 different microbes in them. You, you can smell that they're in them. You can see them fermenting. You know it's real, you know, because the stuff a lot you buy, you don't know if it's dead or alive mm. or anything. Mm. So I think that's where we should be eating those regularly and, and, and thinking preventively. And what would you say to anyone who suffers to digest those? So the probiotics and sometimes cause um, digestive discomfort to certain people with IBS or maybe IBD. What would you say to those people that really want to get involved in looking at more probiotic foods but really struggle to digest them? What else can these people do? Well, I think there's an increasing range of different probiotic foods. Mm. Uh, so some people might have difficulty with milk-based microbes, but now there's uh, you can get coconut milk-based uh, kefirs and, and mm. microbes. You've got this whole range of kombuchas now. Uh, very few people find tea, you know, difficult. And you can, you know, starting with very small amounts, build up tolerance. So uh, people that say, well, I can't do this or I can't do that, yeah, it's going to be harder for these people, but mm. I shouldn't. I don't think it's a black and white that they can't. I think the great thing is, you know, the shop shelves are filling up every year with more and more variations of things they can try. People can start making their own. You know, some people say, well, I don't like too much kefir, but you, you mix it in with a bit of yogurt or, you know, and gradually increase your amounts. Mm. Um, and similarly, you know, strong kombuchas you make at home, you can start with the commercial ones and and just get your taste. So I think trial and error is the key, but mixing them together and, you know, there are, there are lots of ways of, mixing some foods you are comfortable with and adding in. Mm. Some people said, oh, you, Tim, you're always going about how great kimchi is, but I, I hate the taste, but I, I want to have it. Mm. So I said, well, mix it in with something that you do feel comfortable. You know, no reason you can't have it with you know, potatoes or something else mm. to, or pasta or something. Or you know, um, I think we've just got to learn that you, know, you can't suddenly change your diet overnight and expect everything to go well. It's, mm. you know, the Koreans eat kimchi from the day they're born mm. it's not something that you can just say wow you know my i like it and my my gut likes it same with sushi and seaweeds and um, you know eating seaweed is something you have to acquire the taste for so i think we just need a bit more patience mm. everyone yeah. wants a quick fix and they want to be you know all sorted in the six weeks mm -hmm. and it, you know we need to think in in terms of years yeah the longevity the long game the long game, and it's, it's about getting your microbiome in shape long term. Mm. How do you do that? Mm. Not about six weeks. Yeah, I'm really pleased that you said that. So with the Zoe um, personalized nutrition package that you get, there's a very long waiting list for this, isn't there? How long have we got? How many people have signed up on the wait list already? Yes, so it's good news, bad news. So because <laughs> we're talking about this, and I'm thinking people are going to want to place their order tomorrow, and that's not going to be well. One at disposal tomorrow. They, they can sign up tomorrow or today. Currently, there are two hundred thousand people mm. uh, who have signed up saying they'd like the product. Uh, some of them signed up years ago and didn't know the price. 
didn't know whether they still wanted it. So not necessarily all, all going to be customers, but uh, there's obviously huge demand. We are currently getting 2,000 people uh, a week signing up. But we are scaling up um, production. So mm. we're currently nearly at 1,000 a week. And we have the capacity to, you know, keep doubling it until uh, we we get this. So at the moment, we're looking to clear that that list by the end of the year, mm. maybe sooner, mm. and um, hopefully keep up with with demand. Mm-hmm. But uh, the good news is, the more people that do it, the more data we get, the more science we get, the more insights into which microbes are, you know. Uh, are altered by your food choices and so we can advise people more precisely about you know is it particular type of broccoli you should be having is it the purple tipped one or is it you know does which is curly kale different to uh, dinosaur kale um does which nuts you you matter you know have all this kind of information we're going to we're going to get because we'll be at at very soon at this massive scale remember we did the predict study with a thousand people Mm. We've now got 20,000 people's worth of data. And the next stage, very soon, we're going to have 200,000 people's worth of data. So these are dramatic scientific advances. Mm. And um, realize that, you know, the science, the nutrition science is evolving. And so it doesn't mean that what we say now is definitely going to be true in a year. And I think that's the whole ethos of the company is to uh, have the right to correct ourselves and say, well, we got that wrong, you know. you know, we're saying at the moment, yes, three or four cups of coffee is good because it's got fiber and polyphenols in it. But, you know, we might know that there are some people that shouldn't have coffee. Um, mm. Their gut microbes go the wrong way. We don't know. Mm. Um, this is this level of detail is going to really tell us. So it's, it's, it's a super exciting time. Mm. But, uh, yeah, so anyone goes on it, do sign up. Um, we will get to you soon. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're working on it. And so once they receive the kit, which has the glucose monitoring in it, um, the fingerprint, and what's the third one? The poo sample. The poo sample. Once they take that information and send it back, what's the next stage of their personalised diet? Right, well, that first stage, obviously, that once they've got the glucose monitor, they're given standard meals. So mm. they, they get the, f- the famous muffins. They get uh, a regime of different breakfasts, which... Everyone is doing the same meal. So knowing that you've got hundreds of thousands of people doing exactly the same test at the same time gives us this precise information. And so they do all that, do about 10 days of testing, send everything back. And then once we've got the the microbiome sequence back, which takes about uh, four or five weeks, they get um, all their, every food you can think about scored on a a scale from naught to 100. Mm -hmm. And so personalized to you. Mm-hmm. So, banana for me might score twenty-five out of a hundred because it's quite sugary. But for you, it might be forty-five. Mm. And once you start to realise this, you can make fairly good swaps between a banana and a pear, like I did. I used to eat bananas all the time. Now I have apples and pears. And we're always trying to introduce extra choice, make you think of it. So you have an unlimited list of foods, and you'd be then given a program because the idea is you get a a personalized nutritionist, digital nutritionist, who's there with you. So it's a bit like having you know me advising you by text on how you're doing, giving you menus, suggesting your 
what you should be eating for breakfast, lunch, dinner, what your snacks might be, in order to average out a score that is going to be healthy for you, that's going to minimize these peaks in your sugars, your fats, and maximize your gut microbes. Mm -hmm. So that's really what you're doing, depending on your goals. And the idea is that people do this for three months, and we, we send you recipes that would match this, or you can do it yourself. And you know we're going to be doing more and more of this personalizing recipes just to mm. say, make people think, don't always have to have potatoes and, and pasta and whatever. You know, the other, other things you can mix in that are going to improve uh, your scores. So you might, 80% of Britons have a sandwich every lunchtime. Mm. Okay, it's because, since the 1980s. Before mm. then didn't, but suddenly supermarket sandwiches came in and then everyone has sandwiches. Now, generally they're terrible for you, the mm. bread. You can add in other things into it to make it a 80 plus, 8 out of 10 scoring meal. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know that, it's always going to be a 2 out of 10 mm. type meal. So it's that kind of thinking. So it's all part of the education process and you're talking with the nutritionist as you get this plan. But the whole idea is not, it's not a six-week crash diet. Never once talk about calories, mm. which I think is really refreshing. Yeah, we never that's talk everywhere now. We never talk about fats and carbs, other than to say, you know, in general, you know, you should be more towards this. Nothing is banned, mm -hmm. nothing's excluded. We want to increase the diversity of the diet. Our aim is to try and get people eating, you know, more than 30 plants a week. And so often they're new things you haven't tried. It's being innovative, it's being exciting, it's making it fun also to eat. So mm. that's the other thing. So we, you know, we're totally against these calorie-controlled, restrictive diets with these special products uh, that I just think are the absolute enemy. And this is just going to keep evolving, and hopefully you know, this will become a, a huge movement as people mm. swap recipes and uh, find ways of still having their favourite foods, for example, but in combination with others. So it's all about... Everything that's on the plate, not demonising that one thing. Mm. And I think that's really important because I think so many times when we even use the term diet, you know, it sounds like you're excluding things as opposed to obviously your overall nutrition. And this sounds like it's very inclusive and wanting to bring more to the plate, which is really, really important. And something that I think a lot of people love about your what you speak about on Instagram is there's a lot of things such as wine or chocolate that we always get told as these bad foods. But actually, there's a lot of good that can come from them, isn't there, as well? So it's about not always trying to pigeonhole certain foods. It's about bringing the awareness of maybe good quality chocolate, which you talk a lot about having the polyphenols in, and this can be very good for your gut health. Um, and again, wine. I remember watching one of your talks um, at the Royal College of Physicians in USA, you know, wine, a glass of red wine is not, shouldn't be demonized. Um, it's good. So I think it's really fantastic to hear that there's, there's certain things out there that are also positive for our diet. Can you explain why certain foods like that seem to be more demonized? Well, I think it's, it's, it was part of our reductionist view of food. Uh, because we didn't really understand food and nutrition science has really been mm. you know, in the doldrums for 100 years, we're focused on calories, we're focused on 
fats or sugars, coffee, for example, was just seen as caffeine. Mm. Okay, and so forget the other 700 chemicals in it and the fact that it's fermented and is, an, is actually a plant and has more fibre in the average cup of coffee than a, a glass of orange juice, which most people don't know. Um, we've ignored all that because we're focused on the caffeine. Oh, caffeine gives me, you know, makes my heart flutter or I can't sleep. So, okay, demonise it. And we do these bad epidemiology studies to show that it's bad for your heart. You know, and I, I, you know, I wrote some of them when I was a medical student saying it was, could give you cancer. Not all nonsense, but this, that was what you did at the time if you wanted to get on in medicine particularly. But now we're moving away from those kind of studies, although they're still published they're still, and you still see them, headlines in the Daily Mail about you know, this particular ingredient. Uh, so instead of just saying it's all about caffeine, um, let's just take an open view. And, and then when you do that, you see well, actually coffee, people who drink lots of coffee, compared to people who don't, have less heart attacks. And this benefit goes up to five cups, of, cups a day. And it must be because of the other ingredients, because decaf has nearly as the same benefits. And we're just obsessed with this one chemical, because that's all we could measure, and forgot the rest, which we couldn't. And that's true for most of these other things. So red wine, what do you think about alcohol? Alcohol must be bad for you. It's morally bad, you know, all terrible. You, you know, that Tim Spector keeps advocating, you know, alcohol was being really good. It's like, you know, he wouldn't advertise cigar you know, cigarettes. Of course, I'm not saying that, but, you know, we forget there's the plant. Mm. It's the grape skin, you know. No one, you know and it's because it's fermented, it, it, it brings out extra chemicals that you don't get in grape juice. And that's why we've got it wrong. So we've just focused on these bad bits. Chocolate, oh, it's just fat and sugar. That's partly because we were all brought up on Cadbury's or Hershey's if you're in America, where the content of cocoa is so low that it has to be filled with sugar and or extra fats. Actually, you know, if you go to countries where they're used to having dark chocolate, over 70 80% cacao, it's just plant. It's a fermented plant, mm. a little bit of sugar, and... That's it, you know, and, and a bit of cocoa butter. And that's all the ingredients, three ingredients. So it's this reductionist idea, I think, mm. that we thought we knew the answers mm. and desperately trying to sort of paper up the cracks in, in these theories. And I think it's all unraveled now mm. and everything's for grabs. You know, I was told as a kid peanuts were bad for you because they, you know, got your fat levels up. Now we know they're actually good for you and people mm -hmm. that eat nuts will live longer. Mm. Um, you know, so many examples like that. Like butter. Yeah, butter is terrible. Eggs. Everyone should get moved to, you know, margarine. I'm, I'm not saying butter's good for you, but it's certainly no, there's no evidence it's any different to margarine. Mm. It's fairly neutral. And, and eggs are similar, really great source of protein and all kinds of other nutrients. And there's no evidence that they're, they're bad for you. Mm. And yet, because of its association with fats... They forgot about all the protein and other stuff in it. They mm. focused on one. This is this crazy reductionist idea we had of, of all foods. And mm. hopefully, you know, we can ditch it. And as we realize that you know, nutrition science is, is actually one of the most complex of the sciences. And we're only scraping the surface for it now. And it's going to take resources and, you know, 
lots of brainy people, lots of computers, lots of collecting data to sort it out. And I think, mm. but it's I think it's one of the most exciting areas in science at the moment. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's forever changing, and I love the fact that you're changing with it on the Zoe app and um, and being you know honest and and communicating that because I think that is really important that you know, what research might say now, it could change in a couple of years' time and, and we can change with that. I think that's a really important um, topic to talk about. And so if you could give any of the listeners, and they're probably overwhelmed so much information, thinking, where do I start? What would be the three main things that you would say people could start doing that can start a beneficial change to somebody's gut health and diet? Okay, so while you're waiting for your Zoe kit, uh, what can you do? Or if you, you, you don't want to spend the money on it, look after your gut. So you can go a lot of the way by improving your, your gut health just by understanding more about the links between food and your, your gut. So try and eat your 30 plants a week, okay? We have did the study to show that's about the right level. And it's a good aim to go for. Remember that a plant is also a nut, a seed, and a herb. And so just mix it up more, try new things. And you get, you know, I cheat with seed mixes and other things to mm. kickstart my day and makes it actually quite much easier than you think to do that. Pick f- f- your fruits and vegetables that are high in polyphenols. Mm. So we've talked about coffee, red wine, chocolate. Um, you know, most people don't think of those as all oh, healthy vegetables, you mm. know, but... Um, <laughs> I love that's your second one. <laughs> um, but, you know, bright-coloured berries, nuts, mm. seeds, things that are slightly bitter, uh, astringent. Uh, always go for those extra coloured, the cabbages that have the red tinge on it, you know. A uh, bit of extra colour is what you should look for. Olive oil is far better than anything else. Extra virgin olive oil, a high-quality one, so much better than all the other cooking oils, especially you can't now get sunflower oil. Mm-hmm. Um then have a fermented food every day. Doesn't matter too much what it is, just vary it a bit. I have a, you know, always make sure I get my kefir in the morning. But you've got, you know, the four Ks to remember. You've got kombucha, you've got uh, kimchi, you've got kraut. And don't forget cheese. Uh, high quality cheese is another way to, to get it. People would be so happy you just said that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with cheese. Uh, you know, yeah, you can probably overdo it, but if it's part of this whole picture, mm. um, I tried being vegan. I, I couldn't <laughs> give up my cheese. Uh, you know, and vegan cheese is improving, but it's, uh, it's not there yet. And then finally, uh, really try and stop snacking, as, stop snacking and leave good food intervals for your food and avoid ultra-processed foods. Mm. And... 50% of our the UK diet is ultra-processed food, so you're surrounded by it. I'm not saying never have them, just realise what they are. They should be rare treats, not part of your, your, your daily diet. Mm. Do that, your microbes will thank you. Mm. I think that's fantastic. And also another one I want to just mention, because you talk about it a lot, is artificial sweeteners. Yeah. Staying away from, from them. Well, they're in ultra-processed foods, so... Mm. Uh, and increasingly being added in mixtures with sugars and gums and all these other things. So we know that the reason the artificial uh, ultra-processed foods are bad is because they have these artificial sweeteners, they have emulsifiers, uh, all things that uh, can make your microbes misbehave Mm. and they can't deal with. So Mm -hmm. uh, the bigger the list of ingredients, the more likely it is something that's going to upset your 
your gut. Mm-hmm. And so last question, what does live well, be well mean to you? I think it means that by you know, looking after your body, uh, it repays you by sending out the right signals to your brain to, to keep you happy. And I think it's a, a two-way process. Mm. And I think we've got to start thinking of our body as also you know, these trillions of fantastic microbes in there that are pumping out these chemicals that are keeping you happy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, we've got to feed them right. And uh, it's this marvellous circle. If you get it right, uh, we can all be happy. If mm-hmm. microbes are happy, you'll be happy. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I think Steve Jobs, who sadly passed away recently, one of his um, facts that he left with was allow your food to be your medicine. Otherwise, your medicine will be your food. Very wise saying. And I think, you know, he died of pancreatic cancer. And um, that was one of the things that he he left as one of his top five things. And I think it's exactly what you're embodying and talking about today. So thank you for coming on to Live Well, Be Well. And if anyone wants to buy Zoe Nutrition Pack, where can they get it from? Where can they head to? Uh, just go online and look at joinzoe.com mm-hmm. and uh, there's a, a brief quiz and you can sign up uh, from there. That's the, the simple way to do it. And uh, if they want to learn more about personalized nutrition, of course, my book, Spoon Fed, and uh, follow me on Instagram as well. Which is? Tim.Spectre. And uh, there's probably not many people who do Twitter. It's all dying off, but uh, I'm also on Twitter. Funnily enough, I've just got into Twitter. I thought I'd kind of reverse and gone the other way. But um, I'll make sure I pop all of that in the show notes. But thank you so much, Tim, for coming on to Live Well, Be Well today. Been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. All the information covered in today's podcast with important links is in today's show notes. And if you haven't yet, please do hit the subscribe button and do share this with friends, family, co-workers, whoever you love, please share this podcast. It means more than you realize. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. If you love this podcast, I would really urge you to support us on Patreon. Our Patreon community really do help keep this podcast going. And alongside being within the community, you can also get exclusive access to early release podcasts and specific Q&As with me on topics that you want to hear. Being a Patreon member of this podcast does really help keep the support going because it's not easy to deliver this every week without you guys. So thank you so much. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please go to patreon forward slash live well, be well, become a member and support this podcast. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.